one of my minors in college was uh, English, and in particular, I was focused in on literature, and and so I had to take a world literature course. And uh, through the course of that particular uh, class, uh, I was exposed to a short story written by Leo Tolstoy. Now, most of us know Tolstoy because of his mammoth work, War and Peace. Um, but uh, he, he wrote a lot of short stories as well. And one that really impacted me, that, that has really stuck with me over the years, I, I, I do believe it is my favorite short story uh, that I've ever read, is a story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And uh, Tolstoy wrote this story about a, it was a, about a man whose name was Pahom, who was uh, listening to his wife and uh, sister-in-law argue one day about the, the values of, of having a lot of land and so forth, and um, becomes committed to, becomes desirous of possessing land, believing that to possess land would be to make him happy would mean to free him from the, uh, the temptations of the world, free him from the struggles of the world, and, and give him a security, give him a position in the world. And so he begins to acquire land. And first he starts there in uh, his own village, and, and he uh, is able to buy some land uh, on credit, but the, the crop is really good, and so he's able to, to pay for that land, pay that land off, and, and he's living pretty securely there initially. Um, but he becomes obsessed with having even more land, and so he hears of a, of a commune that's not too far away that's, that's selling land at, at great prices for those who come and work with them and, and, and stay with them. And so he goes and he buys even more land, and, and while he's there and, and he's, he's living in this circumstance, in this situation, he hears from a merchant of a people known as the Bashkirs, and the Bashkirs have a, a bargain that if you pay them a 1,000 uh, rubles, uh, that uh, they don't they don't sell land by the acre they sell it by the day, and, and what it is is that uh, you start off at a given point and you start walking and you mark off your land, and if you get back to the point where you started at, by the end of the day, whatever you were able to create the circumference of that land was yours. Okay? But if you didn't get back to that point, then um, you you forfeited your your thousand rubles. And so he goes and he he begins his journey. He has his he has his his plot course to, uh, plotted out and so forth of what he's going to do. And he I mean he is he's being really industrious. He's he's claiming a ton of land. Okay, and he gets he gets toward the end and he's he's exhausted. He's tired. He's you know he he hadn't really eaten because he's been working on this all day and so forth. And and he realizes I'm not going to make it to the point before the end of the day, before the sun sets. And he's about to give up, just exhausted and tired and really unable to go on. But then he realizes that the, the, the starting point is at the top of the mountain, of the hill, and that the sun hasn't set from there. Even though it looks like it's set for him, it hasn't set from there. So he, he pushes himself beyond his capabilities, and he, 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 he rushes up the hill, giving every bit of energy, every bit of strength, every bit of... Uh, courage that he has to, to get up to the top of that hill, and he gets to the top, and he reaches the point, and he falls at the point, and the Basquiers start cheering, yay, this, he's acquired much land today, he's acquired much land today. And then they look, and they see that he has fallen dead, that he had overexerted himself. And the last line in the short story is, six feet from head to heel was all that he needed. 
And it's a story, it's based upon Jesus' statement, what good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? And at the, the heart of Tolstoy's story, at the heart of Jesus' uh, lesson is this command to not covet. Now we hear that word, do not covet. It's not a word that we use a lot in our culture. I, I don't think I've actually ever heard anybody in any kind of exchange ever say, you're coveting or anything like that. It's not, it's not a word that's just real prevalent. But I think most of us know what it means. But let's dig into this commandment this morning and, and hopefully gain some understanding of exactly how this applies to us and, and, and how the principle is, again, at work in our lives of what God has to say about who He is and about who we are. So let's look at, at some, uh, let's first look at the passage, of course, and what it has to say. It says, Do not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the, the, the commandment itself is, is a little bit longer than the, the preceding ones that we've dealt with over the last couple of weeks. It, it doesn't just say do not covet. It gives a, a lot more detail. It gives a lot more explanation. And, and I think, again, the reason for this is that, that God, through Moses, wants to communicate to us, wants to relate to us the, the comprehensiveness of this particular command. That, that it's about looking at, it's about dealing with all the realities around us, not just a particular set of, of expectations or a particular thing, set of things that may attract us, that this is, this is about all of our lives. And so let's take a look at, at some of the, the definitions of covetousness. What is coveting? Covetousness, first of all, is a preoccupied desire to acquire. Okay? That, that you are preoccupied, you're driven by, you're, you're motivated by, your, your thoughts are, are around that reality. And, and Looking back at the, the commandment, what? It, it's, it has to do with people. Don't covet his wife. has to do with possessions. has to do with a certain standard of living. It, it, it's, it's the desire to acquire those realities. Another definition is that it is the place where a healthy desire becomes unhealthy. Okay? It's not bad necessarily to want things. It's not bad necessarily to desire a better life for you or your family or those sorts of things. It, that's not necessarily a, a, an evil in and of itself, but there is that place at, at which that desire becomes unhealthy to where we begin to ignore other realities, where we begin to ignore other things that need to be a part of our life, part of our, our mindset and our perspective, part of our desires. And, and so that is uh, coveting. It's also a place where justice is distorted into selfishness. You know, a lot of times we, we seek justice in our life and in the life of people around us in, in terms of what they're experiencing versus what other people are experiencing. And, and again, justice is an important biblical concept. It's something that um, many of the Old Testament prophets build their preaching around. It's something certainly that Jesus uh, advocated for uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount and in other sermons that, that he preached as well. But justice can sometimes be turned into a self-centered mentality. I deserve better. I deserve more. And it becomes more about, again, our elevation of ourselves than it does really seeking justice. And then coveting is letting our heart and mind become incessantly focused on that which we don't have rather than being satisfied 
with that which we do. Okay. It, it's failing to recognize, failing to see the blessings that God's already granted us. It's failing to see the good life many times in many ways that we already possess. And so we become obsessed with something more. Now, what is behind the danger of coveting? Why, why, why does God say, don't, don't get obsessed this way? Don't get this mindset. Why, don't develop this preoccupation. What, what are some of the things that, that God's trying to, to communicate to us? What are some, some pitfalls that happen when coveting takes hold of our heart and of our mind? Well, I think the first thing that coveting does is it sets us up for deception. Okay. The purchase you didn't really need. Okay. I don't know how many times um, you know, I purchased something that I really didn't need because someone convinced me that I needed it. Okay. And I remember a couple years ago, um, Lauren was getting ready to buy her first car. And I said, Okay, we're going to go in, we're going to negotiate, but here's the thing, sweetheart. When you go in, number one, don't fall in love with any car. Okay, be ready to walk out. Okay, if they're, if they're not going to deal with you, if they're not going to speak to us, you have to sincerely be ready to walk out. Okay, so know that going in. And so we walked in and, and we negotiated for what seems to me an hour or two hours maybe. That may be a little bit more than it actually was, but we negotiated for a good long time and they just weren't hearing me in terms of what I was willing to pay. And so I said, okay, sweetheart, we're going. And we got up and we started to walk out. And they're, oh, no, 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 we'll, we'll do it. Okay. They, they, they came over to where we were. Okay. If you go into a purchasing situation and you have to have it, seller has the advantage. They can convince you to pay more really than you wanted to. Okay. Than you should have. Um, it also sets us up in deception in terms of the relationship you shouldn't have been in. Okay, When you start looking at that other person, whoever they are, wherever they are, whether they're in a relationship with someone else or you're in a relationship with someone and, and you're seeing somebody out over there, covetousness, that, that incessant desire for that person, that motivation to, to win them over, uh, to be funny in their eyes, to... To, to you know get get a, a giggle out of them or or a laugh or or some level of attention from them that that leads you down a path toward being in a relationship you shouldn't have been in secondly coveting damages our relationship with our neighbor okay. when you see what they have when you see what they would if you can't truly rejoice with them in what they possess and what they've been able to acquire, if you, if you can't see the joy in that, then what kind of friend are you? Are you truly loving your neighbor as Jesus would call us to? But you, it ends up so often being a, a one-upsmanship. You know, they got a new quarter-ton pickup. I'm going to get a half-ton. You know, they, they got a trolling boat. I'm going to get a big boat becomes this competition. And while we may see, we may often describe that competition as, as it's just a little fun. You know, we're, we're just having fun with each other. It really does 
cause a strain or at least a distance in that relationship that doesn't have to be there. And, and it causes us to, to, to not really be able to, to relate to them, you know, especially if you know, you're going into uh, the issue of their, their wife that's mentioned here or their, their husband that's mentioned here. Um, it can destroy those connections, those relationships. Third, coveting robs us of the joy of being the individual God made us to be. Okay. When you're constantly looking at what others have, you can't truly begin to appreciate who you are, who God made you to be, the distinct, special individual with skills and talents and outlooks and perspectives that God built into you to be able to carry out ministry to be able to carry out life, to be able to add to the color of this world in terms of what you bring to it. If you're constantly seeking what others can do, constantly seeking to be like them or to possess what they possess, then you can't really appreciate who you are. I mean, one of, one of the things that, that I struggle with just um, a little bit, I, I've given up on it over the years, is the desire to, to sing. I've always wanted to be able to just stand up and sing in a way that everybody's like, wow, what a voice. Okay? I guarantee you, if I stood up and sang, you would say, wow, what a voice, but not because you were pleased with what you heard. <laughs> okay? You, you, would, you, would, <laughs> you would be going in, in a very different direction with that. But if I'd spent my whole life, quote, seeking the singing, trying to do that, in something I haven't been gifted in, something I haven't been blessed in, then the other skills that I have would not have been developed. The, the other talents that God has granted me would not have been developed. And, and it's important for us to, to see God made us who we are for a reason. You know, Even those traits that we sometimes look at and we say, man, I wish that wasn't part of who I am. You know, stubbornness perhaps. Okay, Some of us have that more than others. And we say, well, I wish I could not be quite as stubborn or I could be like that person or whatever. Well, let me just remind you of a Moses. One of Moses' traits was a stubbornness, that he could stand his ground and pronounce what he needed to pronounce. We see that in the burning bush exchange. Why does he say all the things that he says? Because he's stubborn. He's not going to do what he's been told to do. You're stubborn. You say, well, that, that's bad, right? Well, it's not bad until he lets it turn into disobedience. And in fact, it's a very trait he needs because God's asking him to go stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, and say, let my people go, and to do so over a long, lengthy period of time. He needs to have someone who's stubborn, someone who's not going to say, well, I tried and it didn't work. See you later. Someone who's going to stand there through... Uh, nine plagues, and say, let my people go. Someone who's going to hear, okay, you can go, and then, oh, no, I changed my mind, you can't go. And still stand there and say, let my people go. That's a stubbornness. It's a trait that's generally seen as negative, but when God turns it to his purposes, it's a trait that rescues the whole people, the whole nation. And so we need to grow to appreciate who God has made us and to use those realities for His glory instead of looking at what we can't do. 
Coveting also inevitably leads toward breaking all the other commandments. You say, man, I, you know, I, I got a good grip on this, on some of these commandments. But coveting is the easiest, the quickest way to get us into other types of trouble. This is at the heart of Paul's instruction to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith in greediness and pierced themselves through many pains. What's the love of money? It's covetousness. That's what Paul is talking about there. I mean, you just look at David, for instance. The whole incident of David and Bathsheba starts with what? Him coveting another man's wife. And what's that lead to? It leads to adultery. It leads to theft and stealing this man's wife from him. It leads to murder. It leads to lying about it. It leads to uh, dishonoring his parents and what they taught him, how they raised him. It leads to him not putting God first, have him having idols in his life and his existence, and, and it leads to him dishonoring God's name. Every other commandment is broken because it all started with him coveting another man's wife. To create, to, to let this desire begin to grow in us is, is to experience a dangerous area of life. where we can truly cause a lot of harm to those around us. Coveting also focuses our attention on the things that are passing, fading away. We just sang, because he lives. And the song is what? It's a reflection of the fact that Christ's resurrection the fact that he lives promises us what? That one day we're going to live. It's a reflection on the gift of eternity. It's a, it's a reflection on how the gift of eternity affects us right now. That I can face the hard times. I can face the difficult times. I can face the, the, the hardships of this life because I know he lives and therefore I'm going to live one day in a, in a transformed reality, in a transformed situation. And so there's a, there's a health, there's a strength, there's a vigor in, in seeing life through the eyes of eternity, in prioritizing things that last, in prioritizing relationships and, and work and, and these sorts of things that, that remain constant, that, that are not changing, that won't fade away. And so the opposite is also true, that to that to highlight and to covet and to seek and to desire things that are that are of this world, to let that be your controlling emphasis, to let that be what directs your mind and your heart and your desires, is to what? It's, it's to undermine your joy. It's to undermine your experience. It's to undermine your ability, your capacity to deal with the hardships of this life. And to not even be able to enjoy the good parts of this life. And then coveting damages our capacity to respond 
to God's Word and therefore destroys us. And the parable of the sower or the seeds or the soils goes by all three names. Jesus reflects upon how the Word of God falls amongst different recipients. And he says in Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, he says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. He's talking about covetousness there. He's saying that the that the word of God, it, when it's when it's confronted by these other desires can sometimes be choked out in terms of how we listen to it and, and how we respond to it. And to get to a place to where we're not hearing the Word of God, where we're not listening to the Word of God, where we're not responding to the Word of God, is to be in a very dangerous, very precarious circumstance indeed. And it's to get to a place to where our heart is so hardened that we can't find the joy, we can't find the repentance, we can't find the future in the direction that we need in order to recover. And Scripture even goes so far as to say that, that in certain situations like that, where it gets so far and, and the heart becomes so hard that God, the Holy Spirit, stops trying to break through. And there's only one thing worse than being lost, y'all, and that's being lost with no one looking for you. Covetousness is a dangerous mindset. It's one that we have to get control of. It's one that we have to, to train our, our minds to move in a different direction. So how do we do that? How do we find a cure to covetousness. Well, the cure for covetousness is contentment. It's contentment. How do we find contentment? Well, we need to understand what it is. That, number one, biblical contentment is rooted in nurturing the good desires, not emptying ourselves of desire. Okay. It's Eastern religions. It's Buddhism and, and others like that that say we need to empty ourselves of all desire. That's not a biblical mindset. That's not a biblical mandate or expression. The biblical mandate is what? To focus in on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Be filled with those things. Be filled with, with those realities. If you try and remove things from your life, if, if you become a, a legalist and you try and, and pull things out of your life and pull things out of your practice and actions, you're ultimately only going to end up destroying yourself because you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get uh, uh, overwhelmed. You're going to get angry. Why can't I do this? But if you fill your heart and your mind with that which is true and that which is pure and that which is, is holy and righteous and those things that, that we're instructed to fill our lives with, then guess what? Those other concerns, those other worries, those other realities, they start to fade in importance and in their frequency of, of drawing you, attracting you, pulling you away from where you're supposed to be. 
We need to understand that contentment allows us to, to see the value in giving to others rather than building for ourselves. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is responding to a crowd. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator for you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying that the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store up all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Contentment is looking at the things that God has blessed us with. And when we get a surplus, when we get more, when, when God blesses us more richly, it's what? It's seeing the value and giving that to others. Helping others to experience the joy. Helping the others to experience the goodness of what you're experiencing. Contentment allows us to, to find peace in our present circumstances. Paul says in Philippians, what? I have learned to be content. I've learned it. it, it it's been a journey. It's been a discovery. And that's, it's, it's at that point that he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've, I've learned to see. I've gained wisdom in, in seeing what I already have. There's a story of a, a rich man who, who finds a man relaxing by his boat. And the rich man says to the man, why aren't you fishing? And the man says, because I've caught enough fish for today. And the rich man said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? And he says, what would I do with them? Said the fisherman. And he says, well, you could sell them for money. And then you could buy a better boat and go into deeper water and catch even more fish and make lots of money. And soon you could have a fleet of fishing boats and be rich like me. And the fisherman said, Okay, then what, would, then what would I do? And the man said, you could sit down and enjoy your life. Here is this fisherman who was sitting down and enjoying his life. And the rich man couldn't see that. Couldn't see the power of just being content with what he had. Now, this is not laziness. The man had worked. The man had caught enough fish for the day. The man had, was taking care of his family. He was taking care of himself. He wasn't lazy, but he also wasn't driven by this unhealthy desire just to possess more, to build bigger, to get greater. There is a difference, you see, between complacency and contentment. Complacency is self-satisfaction. Contentment is satisfaction with God. Complacency is looking at me and saying, hmm. yeah, I'm good, whatever. 
Contentment is saying God is good. And so I can be who I am. Contentment is being driven by God's desires. Complacency is waiting for God to come to our way of thinking. Complacency is just waiting for life to change, but having no real hope that it will. But contentment is praying with confidence for our dreams, knowing that God's plan is always the best. There's a difference there. The cause of contentment is in understanding the love of God. You want to discover contentment, you have to understand God's love. You need to understand that it is a love that provides. That God is going to meet the needs of His people. And that we can look at where we're at, we can look at our situation And most often, the reason we're struggling financially, the reason we're struggling with other things, is because we weren't content with what we had. And so we overspent. Or we overpurchased land or houses or whatever that we shouldn't have been seeking. How much land does a man need? God provides for that. We need to see God's love as a love that protects that he's going to see us through those difficult times. And that even if it doesn't work out exactly how we thought, we're going to worship God regardless because he is good. We need to understand that the love of God is, is, is patient. He's going to wait on us. And he forgives us. And because of that, we can develop a patience. We can develop a mindset, a contentment. I don't have to worry about, quote, pleasing God because he's walking with me in this journey. How radically different would our lives be if we truly accepted and lived the truth that God loves us unconditionally? And that's all we need. The person who has God in everything has no more than the person who has God in nothing. When Hudson Taylor said that, he was expressing, he was communicating the reality that at the end of the day, God is what you need. He's all you need, nothing more. The story is told Two men walking down a busy street in New York City. And one of them stops his companion and says, Do you hear that? The man says, What do you mean, do I hear that? He says, Do you hear that cricket? And the guy says, Hear a cricket? Are you kidding? There's horns blaring, there's people yelling, there's all sorts of there's construction work all around us. What do you mean, do I hear a cricket? And a man walked over and lifted up a rock, and sure enough, there was a cricket underneath that rock. He goes, how on earth How on earth could you hear that cricket? How on earth could you know that that was there? And his friend said, I'll show you. And he took a coin from his pocket, tossed it into the air, 
And when the coin struck the sidewalk, several people around them stopped and started checking their pockets for if they had dropped a coin and started looking for the noise that they had heard. And he looked at his friend and he said, you hear what you're trained to listen for. And the question that we need to ask this morning is what are we hearing? Are we hearing the voices of the world around us that's saying we need more? Who says you can't have it all? Where acquisition and possessions and and power is what we're about? Or are we hearing the voice of God, the voice of truth? that tells us that he's enough and that he will see us through all that we encounter if we'll but trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. I thank you for the opportunity to to talk with them, to fellowship with them, to laugh with them to experience life with them. God, I pray that you would help us each to hear you, to prioritize your priorities, and to walk in a way that reveals the power of your presence. We are so grateful to you. May we walk in faith as you lead us. In Christ's name I pray.